So God's master plan was to have an intimate relationship with the people he created and for his people to have an intimate relationship with each other. This master plan was conceived and set in motion before creation, when all there was, was God. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to the book of Ephesians, we're going to begin uh, our study in Ephesians for this quarter. Um, this is a book that is rich beyond comparison. Uh, just to give you a little by way of comparison, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the great uh, pastors in England of the 20th century, spent 38 messages getting through chapter one. Just, we're not going to do that. Never fear. His, his uh, sermons on Ephesians ran eight volumes, and we're going to try and do it in 10 weeks, so, or 12 weeks, so hang on quickly. Warren Wiersbe recounts the story of Hetty Green, who had the dubious reputation of being America's greatest miser. She was a brilliant financier and was known as the Witch of Wall Street. When she died in 1916, she left an estate of over $100 million dollars. That's when $100 million was really $100 million, right? She wore the same black dress every day for years and told her maid to only wash the hem because it saved money on soap. When her son Ned broke his leg, she tried to have him admitted to a free clinic for the poor. As a result of neglect, his leg ultimately had to be amputated. It was report. Yeah, you know people like this, right? It was reported that she died from apoplexy while arguing with her maid over the virtues of skim milk. She is an illustration of far too many Christians who live like paupers when they have the unlimited wealth of God himself at their disposal. We're going to look today, begin our study in Ephesians, where we look at the limitless, eternal, infinite wealth we have in Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians was written by Paul about 60 to 61 AD. He had been arrested uh, by the Jews and uh, had appealed to Caesar. He was sent to Rome uh, to be tried by Caesar. In this case, it was Nero. He was probably kept in the barracks of the Praetorian Guard, which was the personal guard for Caesar, or in rental quarters nearby while he was awaiting trial uh, for his faith. Acts 28 kind of tells us that. And during his imprisonment, this was his first imprisonment, he not only wrote Ephesians, he also wrote Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And those are typically known, often called the prison epistles. Seems as though this letter was intended to be a circular letter. That means it was, even though it was primarily written to the church at Ephesus, it was intended to be read by multiple churches in the area. So it was going to be making the rounds of a variety of churches. Most of Paul's letters, when you read the New Testament, were written to churches who had problems. And Ephesus, of course, is no different. 
Paul had written, uh, warned the leaders at Ephesus years before to be on their guard against false teachers. And as you know, we just finished 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, and Timothy was pastoring at that point, and there was an enormous amount of false teachers at work in the church at Ephesus. Now, if you jump ahead 30 years into the future, about AD 95, and you read the book of Revelation, the Holy Spirit reveals to the Apostle John that if he, Ephesus has a serious problem and it's not false teachers. They had successfully defended the church against false teachers, but Christ's indictment of the church at Ephesus in AD 95 was that they had left their first love, Jesus Christ. It's like a marriage where someone deserts their spouse. They left their first love. That wasn't they drifted away. It was intentional. They turned their back on Jesus Christ. So this church obviously has some issues. It's fascinating. In the book of Ephesians, the word love is used 19 times. So you look and you say, huh, wonder if the apostle Paul had seen the tendencies already toward losing their love for Jesus that we find out 30 years later, the apostle John highlighted in Revelation 2 that they in fact had left their first love. So love is really critical to this letter in central. Rob's going to show you kind of a map of Ephesus and where it is in the grand scheme of things. Paul had first visited this city in A.D. 52. He had been traveling with Aquila and Priscilla, a couple of missionary team members. He made a brief stop here on his second missionary journey while he was traveling back to Antioch, which is about 90 miles north of Jerusalem, right on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. On his third trip, Paul's made three missionary journeys. His third trip beginning in the fall of A.D. 54, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. So he spent more time in this city than any other city evangelizing, preaching, teaching, overseeing a growing church in this particular area. Now, the city of Ephesus was a critical city in the Roman Empire. It was a commercial center, it was a political center, and it was a significant religious center. It was located at that time on the mouth of the Caister River, on the eastern edge of the Aegean Sea and what's modern-day Turkey today. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome, about a million people, Alexandria, probably 250,000, and we think that Ephesus might have had a couple hundred thousand people. It was the capital city of this Roman province, and it had a military garrison, which means it was a center of uh, authority and um, uh, obviously some nice tax-free areas there as well, being a Roman military garrison. It was best known throughout the empire as being the site of the Temple of Artemis, or Diana. Diana was the Greek, uh, the Roman version of Artemis, which was the Greek goddess of the hunt and uh, of love. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was this temple. Rob's going to show you kind of an artist's rendition. The temple actually was built three different times and destroyed and rebuilt. Uh, there are some descriptions of it. So this, what you're seeing up here is an artist's rendition of what we think it looked like. It was obviously hugely significant in that particular area. The very earliest temple, the Diana, contained a sacred stone that had, had, that had fallen from heaven. Chances are that was a meteorite, black stone fallen from heaven. And as time went on, the legend grew that the very image of Diana had fallen out of heaven. So they built this huge temple, and people came from all over the empire to worship at this particular place. So Ephesus was a commercial center, a political center, a military center, and a religious center. 
And Paul encountered a great deal of religious opposition from the worshipers of Diana when he brought the gospel there. As a matter of fact, Demetrius was a silversmith who made a living. There was a whole guild of silversmiths. They made a living making these little silver idols to Diana. Well, as the gospel began to make inroads into Ephesus, it really cut back on the profitability of this idol-making trade. And so Demetrius, as you recall from Acts, had organized a citywide riot against Paul. So a lot of things happened in the city of Ephesus. This book, this letter, is very neatly divided into two parts. The first three chapters and the second three chapters. Paul often divides his books into principles and practices. So when you look at Ephesus, you have pure or doctrinal knowledge on the front end, and the last half of the book is practical or applied knowledge. So Paul often will start with principles, then he'll talk about practices, he'll talk about doctrine first, then he'll talk about duty. He talks about knowing and then doing. He must have attended manna. He talks about believing and then behaving consistent without. So very, very often he does that. So the first three chapters of Ephesus deal with the calling of the church, the purpose of the church, God's purpose for the church. God created people because he wanted to have a relationship with them. I don't know why, but he created you and I because he wanted a relationship with us, as Pastor Andrew pointed out this morning. So the church consists of people who have a relationship with God through Jesus. The church actually is the body of Christ. Jesus Christ is in heaven today, and you are his body. You are his eyes, his ears, his hands, his feet. We represent Jesus Christ physically on planet Earth. That's the first three chapters. The second three chapters are the conduct of the church. Once we know what God's purpose for the church is, the second three chapters are, here's how the church should act. Here's how the church should behave. We should live up in practice to the position that God has called us to. Because when the world sees the church, they should see Jesus. That's all they should see. Unfortunately, they see a lot of things besides Jesus, right? We're going to talk about that. Charles Ryrie notes that the great theme of Ephesians is God's eternal purpose to establish and complete his body, the church of Christ. Let's go to the narrative, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Saints are set free from sin and set apart for God through Christ's work on the cross. Saints are set free from sin and set apart for God through Christ's work on the cross. Now, Paul identifies himself as an apostle. That literally translates messenger. It's one who is sent forth with orders from a superior. So an apostle doesn't take their own message. They take the message of the one who sent them. In this case, Jesus Christ. Now, originally that word apostle literally only meant the 12 disciples plus Paul. They are people who had been witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we didn't volunteer for this job. We didn't sign up, put our name on a list. God called us, commanded us, and chose them. And he says, this message is to saints who are at Ephesus. And the Greek word for saint is hagios, which means holy. So saints means holy. Holy means set apart for a special use. 
Holy means set apart for a special use. Now, the opposite of holy is profane. And, of course, most often we think of language when we say, well, someone used a profanity. What that simply means is they took something that was meant for special use and used it as common use. Taking the name of the Lord your God in vain means his name is holy, and you use it as a curse word instead of a word for worship. That's profanity. I have a holy toothbrush at home. That toothbrush is set apart for my mouth and only my mouth. <laughs> right? Have you ever used someone else's toothbrush? Hopefully not often. You would profane my toothbrush if you used it to scrub the floor. You get in the picture? Marital sex is holy in the sense that God set it apart for two marriage partners, right? Only and no one else. It's exclusive in that sense that it excludes everything else, all others, except for those for whom it was reserved. In the same way, you and I as Christians are set apart for God's use and no one else's. Before Christ, this world was our home. We were in bondage to sin and Satan and our selfishness. Now that we belong to Jesus, heaven is our home, right? We don't belong to this world. We belong to God. We are set apart for God through Christ's finished work on the cross. It's like God put a sign around your neck that says, property of God. Saints, by the way, are not super Christians. They don't live perfect lives. Every Christian is a saint. Every Christian is set apart for God, set apart from sin, based on what Jesus did on the cross and forgave our sins and restored our relationship with Almighty God. So Paul says, you are saints, you are set apart, and you are faithful and the only way that that happens is for those who are in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, is critical throughout the New Testament. It's used 27 times in the book of Ephesians. In Christ, 27 times. It's used nine times in the first chapter only. Clearly, it's a critical, critical concept. One pastor described being in Christ like being in Walmart. Let's suppose that you won an unlimited shopping spree, and it's an award, and it lets you shop at Walmart and buy whatever you want. That award won't do you any good unless you either physically go into the store or electronically go into the store online in order to shop. You have to be in Walmart before you can access everything that Walmart has to offer. When you become a Christian, you step into the store in the sense that you are now in Christ and everything that God has for you becomes yours in and through Christ. See, every one of us has been set apart for God. We've also been designed by God to fulfill his plan for our lives. And Paul was a sent one. He was an apostle. Guess what? You are sent too. Jesus Christ has called every one of his born ones, ones that have been born again, to carry the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. 
And Pastor Andrew challenged us this morning, if you were at the 8 o'clock service, and you will be challenged at the 11 o'clock service, to pray for your one. The one person that God has laid on your heart to carry the gospel to. Verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now these two phrases, these two words are often used by Paul. Grace and peace. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is divine enablement, divine power that God gives to every one of his children. And peace, of course, is shalom. This means, this. by the way, when the Bible uses the word peace, it just doesn't mean absence of conflict. We're at peace, meaning we're not fighting. Well, that's a very limited view of peace. Shalom literally means wholeness. It means a completeness. It means a unity, far more than just lack of conflict. So when God gives us his grace through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God when our sins are forgiven, and we have the peace of God when we trust him with our problems. By the way, you cannot have the peace of God until you are at peace with God. So you first become a Christian and Jesus Christ makes peace between you and God because your sins are forgiven, and now you can have the peace of God as you walk through life and worries and doubts and fears and troubles and conflicts assail us, Jesus Christ says you can have the peace of God that passes understanding as you daily surrender your needs to him. So the peace that we have only comes through God's grace. Now verse 3 through 14 are unique in the New Testament. In the Greek, Ephesians 1 verse 3 to 14 is one sentence without a period or a comma. There's 202 words in a row without a period. Once Paul gets started, he can't stop. So verse 3 to 14 tells us that God has a master plan before creation. And that master plan culminates with you and I living with God forever in his home called heaven. There are three elements in this master plan that God has for you and I. We're going to look at the first one today. Verse 4 to 6 highlights the work that God the Father did as he chose us in eternity past. This is our election. That's what we're going to talk about today. Verses 7 to 10 praise Jesus the Son for his work in redeeming us in our historical past. This is our redemption. And verses 11 to 14 praise the Holy Spirit because he has sealed us in our own personal past, at the moment of our salvation, this is our inheritance. So there's three main ideas in verses 3 to 14. Election, redemption, and inheritance. We're just going to talk about election this morning, by and large. And every one of these blessings that Paul can't stop talking about in these verses 3 to 14 come to us only through Christ. Only through Christ. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. If that doesn't blow your mind, you don't understand it. So let's try and explain it. Here's the principle. God deserves our praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing through our relationship with Christ. God deserves our praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
through our relationship with Christ. Now, the word blessed means to praise. It means to commend. We get the word eulogy. It means a good word. You know, you say a good word for people. So we should praise God for all the blessings he has bestowed on us, especially the blessing of Jesus, because that is the way that we experience all the blessings of God. And we're supposed to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The source of all our blessings is our Heavenly Father. Every good thing that you have comes from God and God alone. Every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of lights, you know, in the book of James. It is fitting and appropriate that the creature, you and I, should always bless the Creator. I don't know if you grew up in a church. I grew up in a church where at the end of every service we sang the doxology. That's how we closed all our services as a kid. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. There is an enormous amount of theology in that doxology. Doxology means praise, of course, at that point. So the creature, you and I, are to bless the Creator for His blessings for us. And Paul uses this phrase, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And of course, I'm thinking, that's a big number. When Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that every spiritual blessing, that's virtually inconceivable because God is infinite and He has bestowed on His children all His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. See, when you were born again to the Christ family and to God's family, you were not born poor. You were born rich, beyond your comprehension rich. God promises every spiritual blessing. And I can see some of you going, well, I thought he would give me every physical blessing too. He will give you what you need. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Let me tell you, be grateful that God knows the difference between what you need and what you want. Many, many times we ask God for what we want. And if he gives it to us, because we keep begging, many times we regret what we've asked for. So it's a wonderful thing. We have a heavenly father who really knows what we need. If your children ask you to play in the freeway, sometimes you're inclined to let them because you're so frustrated. <laughs> but you won't do that because you know what they need, not what they want, right? So we are physically blessed by God here on earth. But our greatest blessings are always spiritual because those are the ones that are eternal and can never ever be lost. And God's spiritual blessings come through us, surprise, surprise, through the Holy Spirit, which we received at the moment of salvation. So we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. And by the way, this book will enumerate a bunch of them in the heavenly places. Literally, that's where God lives. In the heavenlies is God's domain, where Christ is right now seated at the right hand of the Father. So the location, the origin, the genesis of all these spiritual blessings that are already ours is in heaven. Our treasures ultimately are in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life is in heaven. Physically, we're here on earth. 
right? I see you. You're physically here. Spiritually, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you say, well, I think I'm here. Yeah, you're here physically. But spiritually, you're also there because you are so identified with Christ at his death, burial, and resurrection that you are literally seated with him in the heavenly places right now. When you die, you're ultimately your body will be resurrected and we will be physically and spiritually with Christ in the heavenly places. We're going to talk about that later on. So he says, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The Father's blessings only belong to those who are in Christ. You say, well, how do we get in Christ? Glad you asked. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So on the cross, Jesus took our sins from us and gave us his perfect righteousness. I want you to think like an accountant. Assets, liabilities, income, expenses. Our sin is a debt. It's a debt so large that we can't pay it. It's impossible to pay. Jesus' righteousness is an asset. It's an infinitely valuable asset. At the cross, Jesus paid our sin debt. He took our sins on him and he exchanged our sins for his righteousness. So he took our debt and gave us his righteousness, that invaluable asset. So when God the Father looks at you and I now, he doesn't see our old sin nature. When he looks at you, he sees his son. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ that's been imputed into your account. He looks at your balance sheet and he says, I just see assets. I see the holiness, the perfection, the glory of my son. He doesn't see our sin. He, Jesus took our sin. It's gone. He's, he's removed it from us as far as the east is from the west. Right? So the Bible says, to give you a word picture, we are clothed with Christ. We're covered with the righteousness of Christ like you put a robe on. So when we trust Jesus to forgive our sin, God puts us in Christ. He covers us with Christ. He immerses us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 gives us a word picture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, she is a new creature. The old things, that old sin life, has passed away. Behold, new things have come. The life of Jesus Christ is now taking us over. Maybe another word picture. Being in Christ is like a baby in its mother's womb. Follow me. Mom and baby are inseparable. Wherever mom is, there's where baby is. The baby is intimately connected with mom and utterly dependent upon mom. The baby is fed by mom, protected by mom, Connected to mom, right? Because baby is in mom, everything that happens to mom happens to baby. Following where I'm going with this? The baby shares the same nature as mom. Same DNA. Being in Christ 
is the same way. It means that Jesus surrounds us and embraces us and encloses us and protects us and gives us his own life. His love gives us everything we need. So when we're in Christ, we are literally like a baby in the womb in the sense that everything we need comes from and through and surrounds us with the love of Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible says that you are not only in Christ, it says that Christ is in you at the same time. I want you to, I'm going to give you a word picture. I want you to think of three Tupperware containers. A little one, middle-sized one, and a great big one. You are the middle-sized one. When you are in Christ, your middle-sized Tupperware container goes inside the big one. And you're surrounded by Christ. That's the big Tupperware container. Christ in you is the smallest Tupperware container that goes inside your middle-sized Tupperware container. So Christ is not only in you, you are also in Christ. You are surrounded from the inside out and from the outside in. Are you feeling a little safer? A little more protected? We know we are in Christ. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. If you are hungry, bread on the shelf is fine, but only bread in your belly will satisfy your hunger. If you are sick, medicine in the bottle is fine, but the medicine won't do you any good unless it gets inside you. Even so, Jesus won't do you any good until he gets inside you. When you ask Jesus to forgive your sin and rule over your life, he sends his spirit to come in and make your heart his home. And Jesus comes inside you through a very narrow door called faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Jesus gives us another word picture. He says our relationship with him is as close and intimate as a grapevine and the branches. The vine and the branches, John 15. He is the vine. We are the branches. As long as the branch stays intimately connected with the vine, the life of the vine flows through to the branch. And that's the only way the vine, the life of the vine can flow through the branch so you can bear fruit. Just like the branch is in the vine, connected intimately, nothing between, so we are in Christ. Does that make sense? The word picture? So this intimate connection with Jesus is really the essence of our Christian life. The Bible says that followers of Jesus are members of Christ's own body. So we all have a body. That's another word picture Paul uses. Christ is the head of his body, and everyone who follows Jesus is part of the body. Some of us are Jesus' feet, some of his hands, some of his ears, his eyes, his mouth, and so forth. We are as connected with Jesus as your eyes are connected to your head. It's intimate. We are one with him, and we are that connected with each other. When Jesus came to redeem us, he restored our relationship with God, but he also made us intimate with each other. So the body of Christ is not just about our relationship with Jesus vertically. It's about our relationship with each other horizontally. So God's master plan was to have an intimate relationship with the people he created and for his people to have an intimate relationship with each other. That's why we say in manna, 
We do life together. This master plan was conceived and set in motion before creation, when all there was was God. Verse 4. Just as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. Here's the principle. Before creation, our loving, sovereign God chose by name each one he would save. Before creation, our loving, sovereign God chose by name each one he would save. This is the first blessing that Paul's mentioning. He says, you've blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the first one. This is the doctrine of election, the doctrine of election. Wayne Grudem defines election as follows. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Now, election literally means to select, to choose for oneself. You know, we have elections in this country. That means we choose candidates who we want to be fulfill certain offices. God did not choose us because of anything we have done. When did all this take place? Before creation. God did not choose us because we, he had foreknowledge that we would choose to believe in Christ at some later date. That means he would have chosen us based on something we would have done. And he chose us based on his grace alone. Election is unconditional. It is 100% God and 0% our doing. We were not born yet. There was no universe created. God made the election to call you to be saved before he created anything. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. Now the implications of that are staggering. We know it's unconditional because Jesus said this in John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16, Jesus is talking to disciples. You did not chose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go bear fruit. So this word drawn, he's talking about the Father draws you. The Greek there means an irresistible force. It's like a magnet that attracts iron or hunger that draws us to food. So it's a very, very powerful force. The Bible says that before salvation, we were what? Dead in our sins. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a dead person? I know, sometimes late at night, there's, you know. Dead people are unable to respond to any stimulus. So if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, what is our capacity to choose God on our own? Zero. There is no, none of us chose God on our own. We were dead in sins. We were enemies with God before he called us. No one is able to choose to come to Jesus unless God first chooses them and draws them to him. So I'm going to talk about something that's going to be confusing. Hang on. Two truths. God is completely sovereign in choosing those he will save. Number two, equally true. Humans are completely responsible 
to respond to God's call to repent and be saved. At the same time, both of those are true. God is sovereign and humans are responsible. And you're going to say, I don't get it. We're going to talk about it. Jesus desires all to be saved. He invites everyone to come to him and receive his gift of eternal life. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. This is an invitation. God is calling. He says, come, come. It's free. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That sounds like you're free to come. You are. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, right? So divine election is a paradox. And our infinite minds really, really can't comprehend it. We freely choose God only because in eternity past, he first chose us. Here's the paradox. God causes us to choose Christ voluntarily. And I can see you saying, mm. it's been said, try and explain election and you may lose your mind. But try and explain it away and you may lose your soul. Now, there are some objections to this argument. Some way say it's not fair that God would only choose to save some and not save all. It's not fair. Well, here's the reality. What's perfectly fair is if God wouldn't save anyone. That's perfectly fair. Because God would be perfectly just to save no one because every single human being is perfectly guilty of breaking all his laws. Everyone deserves hell. Separation from God. The soul that sins, it shall die. And we've all sinned. Right? The fact that God saves anyone is just sheer grace. None of us have the right to tell God who he should save or not. You and I are house guests on his planet. Right? It's his universe. If you want to be large and in charge, get your own universe. Then you can do what you want to do, right? I know, I know, I know. When we judge God for not doing what we think is right, what we're telling him is that we know more than he does. What we're really saying is, God, move over. I'm going to sit on your throne, and I'm going to run things because I know what to do. And God says, you can't run your own backyard. Don't tell me how to run my universe. Romans 9.20. Paul says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? See, God is the creator. We are the creatures. He is the potter. We are the clay. He is infinite. We are finite. He always does what is right. And without him, we will never do what is right. He chose us in him, in Christ. So every one of the blessings that God has for us come to us through Christ. All the goodness of God is ours through Christ. Jesus is the mediator, if you will, the go-between. And all of this took place when? Before the foundation of the world. 
So the infinitely wise creator, God, did not create the world and people without a plan. Right? God's blueprint for time and eternity will absolutely come to pass in perfect order and timing. Now, here's the comfort for us. You are not an afterthought. You are not an accident. There is no accident in God's kingdom. No one was born by accident. Every single person was planned from eternity past. Jesus Christ knew your name before he created light or anything else. Your name was written in the Lamb's book of life before he created anything else. Psalm 139. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. And the whole purpose of this is that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. So God's purpose in choosing us is that we would be holy and blameless. The word holy means set apart from sin and in the evil of this world. And blameless means unstained, no spot. I'm sure you've stained clothing and it's been spotted and stained. And Jesus says, you were called to be stainless, spotless, no blemish. And of course, in ourselves, none of us are blameless, but our sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus, and we are clothed in the pure white robes of Jesus Christ. And God's motive for doing all this is love. Christianity is unique among every religion of the world for lots of reasons, but the most astonishing one is this. God, before the creation of the world, chose to die for his creatures. The creator God chose to die for those he created because he knew that they would need forgiveness because he knew they would sin before he created them. The plan of salvation was not an afterthought. God was not surprised in Genesis 2 when Adam and Eve sinned or Genesis 3. That plan took place in the eternity past. Jesus Christ had been planned to be the sufficiency and the payment for our sins before the creation of the world. I'm going to give you a definition of love. And it sounds good and without Jesus Christ, impossible to do. Here's a definition of love. Love is selfless sacrifice for the benefit of another. Love is selfless sacrifice for the benefit of another. Jesus put it even far better. Greater love has no one than this. The man laid down his life for his friends. Jesus Christ laid down his life. God chose to die in our place. So when we look at election and we say, I do not understand this, no, but you understand the love of God for you because he laid down his life on your behalf and took your place so that you could have a relationship with him. Grace is amazing. Let me try and give you the illustration I think best illustrates election. It's told by the preacher Harry Ironside. Here's the illustration. There's a vast horde of people, a large crowd, hurrying down the broad road. One stands by the side of the road calling attention to a narrow door that leads to life eternal. And on that narrow door is a sign. And the sign says, whosoever will, let them enter. On the narrow door, the sign, whosoever will, let them enter. The messenger continues to invite people, invite people, but most refuse, pass on by, die in their sins. However, 
one man hears the invitation, responds to it, and chooses to enter through the narrow door. When he goes through the door, it shuts behind him, and he finds himself in a huge banquet hall. He starts to wander around the huge banquet hall, and he discovers a place card there with his name engraved on it. Someone was expecting him. Someone knew that he would be in attendance at this banquet. When he looks back at the door through which he had just come into the banquet hall, he sees a sign engraved over the top which says, Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God had indeed chosen him before the creation of the world, but he could not find out until he got inside. Here's why we struggle with this. Our struggle to reconcile God's election and human responsibility is located in our finite nature. See, we're imprisoned by sequential time, right? For us, the arrow of time runs past, present, future. Past, present, future. We're stuck in that sequence. We can look back, but we can't go back. We can go forward, but we can't look forward. So we're stuck in sequential time. God lives outside space and time. Space and time mean nothing to him. He chose us before space-time began. We're responsible to choose him to trust Christ inside space and time. We do not understand how God can choose to save us before we are born and still hold us accountable to choose to respond to his offer of salvation. It is a divine mystery. And the Bible teaches that both are absolutely true. God is sovereign to choose you, and you are responsible to choose him. The important issue is not our understanding. The important issue is God's omnipotence. Let God be God. He is God, not us. And when we bring our little three and a half pound brain before we get Alzheimer's and we try and understand things, there's a limited number of things we can understand because He is God. We should praise God that He chose us. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. The good news is you can't lose it because you didn't earn it in the first place. Our salvation is guaranteed by God Himself. He set His love on us. He knew you by name before the creation. You are precious in His sight. He planned for Jesus to die for your sins before you were born. Doesn't that just amaze you? Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Here's the principle. Our salvation is assured because our gracious God adopted us into his forever family before we were born. Our salvation is assured because our gracious God adopted us into his forever family before we were born. Now, the word predestined literally means to mark out or to appoint or to determine beforehand. It was God's predetermined choice to set his love on us and to establish an intimate love relationship. We had nothing to do with that. We weren't born yet, right? The creation wasn't even around yet. This is the amazing part. We're not only God's servants... We're God's friends. We're not only God's friends, we're God's children. And he says, you can call me Abba, which in Hebrew means daddy. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection. It's a term of, of um, papa. When your grandchildren get in your lap and call you papa, 
Nana, Nana, whatever, whatever, Gaga. Uh, that's intimacy. I don't, know what, I don't know what your grandkids call you. They may say money bags. I don't know. I wonder where they were. But that's intimacy. That's endearment. That's affection. That is relationship. God loves us so much, he not only gave us his name, he gave us his nature. We have the nature of God himself because why? The Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, lives inside us. He adopted us as sons. Now, we are born into God's family at the moment of salvation. We place our faith in Christ. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? You must be born again. That's when we enter the family. Adoption is the act of God whereby he gives his born ones an adult standing inside the family. You know, in Jewish culture, adoption was pretty rare. It didn't happen. In Roman culture, adoption was very, very common. I mean adoption of adults. Very, very common. Adopted sons in a Roman culture got the same rights, same privileges as natural-born sons. We adopted both our children, and I remember standing before the judge, and they basically say, these children are going to have every right as biological children, including the rights of inheritance. That's the last thing they say, rights of inheritance. They said, you got it. Whatever I have is theirs. So when Jesus Christ adopts us, God the Father adopts us through the finished work of Jesus the Son, we have every right and every responsibility as a child of God. And Romans 8 tells us we are God's heirs. We are going to inherit all the riches of Jesus Christ for all eternity. I don't know what your bank book likes now, and it's irrelevant. Your heavenly bank book is overflowing with the wealth of Almighty God. Do you know how rich your heavenly Father is? His greatest gift to us is Himself. His Son, Jesus Christ, eternal life. And this is eternal life, what? That they would know you. That's John 17, the great high priestly prayer, and Jesus Christ, who he has sent. Knowing God is the, by far the greatest wealth that you will ever have. Why did he do it? It says he was kindly intentioned toward us. We are in God's family because it gave God pleasure to adopt us. Not because we earned it. God chose to have an intimate relationship with us. It's just simply amazing. To the praise of the glory of his grace. So the only proper response we have to God's grace is our praise. God the Father loves us. God the Father loves you in the same way that he loves his son, Jesus Christ. And you say, you got to be kidding. He laid down the life of his son, Jesus Christ, for you. What else does he need to demonstrate how precious you are to him? I don't know what else there is. You know, I love you all, but there's no way I'm laying down the life of my kid for you. Not going to happen. My human love doesn't love you that much. Jesus Christ does. God the Father sacrificed his own son so we could live with him forever in heaven. You know, Pastor Andrew talked this morning about who's your one. God has put people in your life, before Marty comes, let me just say this. God has put people in your life who need to know Jesus. They need to go to heaven. And you are the one, and I am the one who is to tell them. 
We don't know whether they're going to respond or not. We don't know whether the name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life or not. That's not our job. Our job is to tell them about Jesus and give them the offer. You can have life, eternal life. Your sins can be forgiven and you can experience the peace and the joy and the love because of the grace of Jesus Christ right here and right now. And your life can be changed forever, not just for eternity, but right now today. And the only way they're going to know is if you and I tell them. Who's your one? If you don't know, ask God who it is. He has put people in your life who Jesus wants in heaven because he died for their sins and our sins. Let me summarize. Saints are set free from sin and set apart for God through Christ's work on the cross. None of us are our own. We've been bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ. We belong to God. We're part of his family. Two, God deserves our praise because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing through our relationship with Christ. By the way, if you want to get your mind blown, read the first 14 verses of this chapter about 10 times. It'll take you 10 times. I listen to this on tape every single day, all six chapters. I'm through it about 20 times and I'm going, man, this is dense. This is like cheesecake. Really dense. Really good. But it's dense. I mean, there's a lot of spiritual calories in these first 14 verses. Put a little chocolate sauce on it. It's good stuff. Read it over and over and over. Number three. I knew you, I could get you with food. Before creation, this is amazing, our loving, sovereign God chose by name each one he would save, and you are in his book, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. By the way, people say, well, how do I know my name's written down in his book? Say yes to Jesus. If you've said yes to Jesus, you're in his book. Number four. Our salvation is assured because our gracious God adopted us into his forever family before we were born. Salvation is from the Lord, and we never need worry about losing our salvation because God is the one who chose us. Okay, this is a rich, rich, rich book. We could spend weeks on the doctrine of election. Please keep reading ahead. We'll continue to carry on in this book as the Lord leads. And I love you all. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.